Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for June 1st, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. Welcome to Chiflet. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have y'all both on the line. And tonight, in about 20 minutes, we're excited about our guests. For the first time, we're going to have Jacob Rubashkin from Inside Elections. And he has done just incredible work, both that publication on his Twitter feed, um, analyzed uh, like over 200 ads from this cycle. Um, and, of course, there will be many, many more as this thing goes through, but he's looked at those. And so we're going to talk to him about a myriad of um, different political topics. Until then, we're going to start off with last night's event. Now, for seemingly weeks now, this was trumpeted as this big event that was going to get the political season back to normalcy because Donald Trump loves rallies and big crowds, feeds off of these big crowds, and they that is a very red state of Oklahoma. And they pick this, and it's like, well, he's not really going to a swing state that he needs votes, but he's going to go where he can get a huge audience and pack them in and get a lot of energy, and it's going to be good visuals, TV. And so it was so big that you know, they had to a million people wanted tickets, or at least fake people on TikTok, wanted the tickets. That they had to set up an outside venue, I guess, for the thousands and thousands of the overflow crowd. And then last night happened. Tim, what did happen and what didn't happen? Well, what did happen was that was about as close, I suppose, to a disaster as you can get without just having a disaster. According to the Tulsa Fire Marshal, there's 6,100 people there. They were expecting a packed house in that arena with um, 19,000 and as many as 40,000 outside, which did not materialize at all. When Trump was in the air, he heard that there was only about two dozen people at their overflow venue, so they uh, scrapped his and Pence's appearance there and proceeded to tear down the stage for everyone to watch on national television. And uh, how did they get it so wrong? Uh Six advanced staffers tested for the virus. Trump heard about that before he left. He 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 was it, it went public. It made him furious. Uh, even as Trump left Washington, though, guys, he was convinced there would be a massive crowd in Tulsa. Um, 
Trump and the campaign both blamed the empty seats on, uh, quote, the fake news media, of course, scaring people and thugs outside of the arena that were driving supporters away, which reporters poo-pooed that. They claimed there was a million tickets uh, requested in advance, and and I understand some kids got on there and had some fun and maybe uh, organized and and ordered several hundred thousand tickets themselves. Uh, but th- that didn't keep the crowd away. There were still enough people that wanted tickets that they should have come. Or uh, uh, are, are they said, I think the virus kept people away. I think that waiver that people were asked to sign, uh, you know, absolving the campaign or the arena of any liability in case they caught the virus. The Juneteenth flap hurt them when they had to move the date. And, you know, I I imagine that any genuine supporter who wanted a ticket probably got one. So I guess that was just all the people that wanted to come. But, I mean, I don't know what else to think. Do you, Catherine? Well, I think I I just have to give great props to uh, the K-pop folks and the TikTok folks for you know, a lot of them, a lot of the people that were involved in that aren't even old enough to vote. And they managed to get all those tickets ordered, spread it virally, and then delete all their things so that nobody, so that the campaign didn't get wind of it. So it was very clever. And uh, I think that the fact that there was, there appeared to be all this demand for tickets made made some people probably think oh it's going to be a it's going to be chaos i'd really like to go you know i'm a trump supporter but i'm not going to drive all the way there what about park you know just like the whole fever around it probably turn probably turned people off some people um but i i just love those kids i got i, I just love them they're they're clever and uh and um, smart and figured it out, um, but it was it, it was. I mean, I'm surprised we haven't heard about firings today because I can't imagine how angry he was after after that because it was such a disaster. <laughs> I mean, it it looked like I I I wasn't really watching it, but one of my friends texted me and said it was really fun to watch. So. I tuned in and I saw that pathetic little group of like, I don't know what, like you said, a couple dozen people hanging around outside. I mean, it was like, um, it it was just, and then they're trying to get all those people to go inside and they're still staying outside. I saw no, they didn't show any protesters on CNN. I didn't see any protesters blocking people. There were some protesters but there's always protesters outside those uh uh trump rallies so uh, bravo for the kids for for you know having an impact 
Yeah, they actually say that they got started by a 51-year-old former Pete Buttigieg volunteer, came up with, um, you know, the mechanism. And I don't really – I don't frequent TikTok, so I know what it is, but I don't know how it works. So I don't know how you request tickets without it getting your email and everything else because that would be the last oh, thing no, I'd they... want it to be on the Trump email list. Catherine? No, they use they fake names and um, fake phone numbers. Yeah. They all like got um, Google Drive or Google. Um, a lot of them got Google phone numbers. People who did put in their their real phone numbers were inundated with text messages from the campaign. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and that that's the nature of politics these days. Um, that that'll probably be with us long after Trump. Um, and, yeah. and it was but, with us before then too. Is is somebody gets hold of your email and you get a fundraising email every day. Uh, from races you've never even heard of, states you've never been in. Um, but yeah, that, so that's uh, you know interesting about that. But that Tim's right when he said that didn't cause the problem. The, maybe it made oh, them right. inflate expectations to where they bragged about it. But nobody just wanted to go to this thing either. A, the passion's just not there anymore for Donald Trump. I mean, maybe support him, but they're not going to you know go passionately drive hundreds of miles um, to come see him. They're afraid of the coronavirus. If they were afraid of the protesters, I mean, they sound like a real tough crowd then because, I mean, what are you exactly are you afraid of? And, and there were no, you know, protests that anybody well, should have been afraid of the, in Tulsa, Oklahoma last night. I saw no yeah, video let me clear that of anything. Up. Well, what happened to him? Let me clear that up. Let me clear that up. The only people who had bombs last night. Uh, the Boogaloo Boys and some of that crowd showed up, and they had a couple of them had long rifles, long guns. Uh, they walked past the reporters and see Oklahoma's an open carry state. You can carry a gun pretty much anywhere. The police finally got on a bullhorn and asked anyone who was carrying a weapon to um, please exit the area of the arena so that, you know, Trump Pence could come in. They they can do it for something like that. Well, absolutely, the reporter said, about half of the Trump crowd that was hanging around outside, yeah, yeah, and at the little crowd of protesters, they, they left. <laughs> they were all carrying <laughs> guns. Uh, and, and so, and, and these Trump there was like 175 of them. There wasn't enough of them to block anything. Plus, there were three main entrances going into that place. They didn't keep anybody from going in. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the police were there filtering through the crowd and saying, okay, if you got a ticket, come on, we're going to divert you over. Nobody had a ticket, went on in. Uh, that didn't happen. This is a state, guys, that Donald Trump won by over 36 points. He is in the heart of one of the reddest of red states in the country, a very, very, very friendly area. They should have been able to fill that arena. Somebody fell flat of their face on the job. They even admitted, although not to the degree that it was done last night, that when you order these tickets, as as they put them out there on the Internet and by phone and whatnot, that there's going to be 
some of that go on, at least some. You know, people, you know, with fake accounts and stuff, ordering tickets that don't really want the tickets. They just want to create a little habit. Now, they created a lot more than a little habit, too. And you're right, David. They raised the expectations game here, but they still should have been able to to fill that arena. Not only did they not fill that arena, but according to the fire marshal, they didn't even halfway fill that arena. And I just wish, David, that you could have seen the look on Trump's face when he entered that place. That was not the excited rah-rah Donald Trump. It just... It just the 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 whole he had all of his surrogates there because he was expecting this massive thing. All his family, the uh, the diamond and silk or whatever their names is, they were there. <laughs> and uh, Representative Jordan flew out there. He was there, uh, and and it was just it, it was. It was as close to a disaster you can get without being one. But let me ask you something, David. Why do you think they could not get more people in that arena? Was it the virus? I think it's a combination of how much do I love Donald Trump that I want to risk my um, well-being for him? And the Mm -hmm. answer, when you put input those two, how much do you care about him? To um, how much risk the answer said forget it now I know there are the crowd like the guy wearing the adult diaper that, um, that said COVID-19 <laughs> on it you know they uh, you know he didn't believe in the verse but obviously some of those folks did the ones that weren't in the arena it was the ones that stayed home but here's the math on this if only 1% of the ticket request were people that legitimately out of that million, and we're going to use a million. I don't know if it's a million point, you know, whatever, but let's just say a million. If 1% of the people were legit and really intended to make it and made it, that's still 10,000 people. There are 4,000 short of that. Um, and so, you, you know, that shows you how off well, um, the, the crowd was. I mean, that was just, I mean, what did he get Montgomery when the just running for the nomination? Actually, it was not Montgomery, it was a mobile. That Alabama rally that kind of kicked off these rallies um, in 2016, where we do more and more, that had about 30,000 people, didn't it? So he is, um, as the president, not as a candidate that used to be on The Apprentice, as the president, he's lost, you know, um, five-sixths of his crowd, basically. Now, the the question will be is, is... does he try to do more of these in a different locale? Does he try to go back to Mobile? Does well, he, um, he uh, you know, does he try to uh, have smaller arenas, maybe not an arena, but a black well, box theater he, that he can fill? What do you think, Catherine? I don't know. I, I, uh, I mean, he's not going to give it up, so he's going to keep doing it. I, I just wonder... I don't know what his next step will be and or how he gets over this. I mean, you know he's mad. He must be mad. So, I don't know. Um, he He's locked in for Alabama, guys. 
he has already publicly stated he is going to Alabama to hold a rally with Tommy Tuberville uh, to campaign against the hated Jeff Sessions. I don't see how he can avoid at least doing that. And that one should be coming up pretty soon. Where's it Um, at in Alabama? Well, I would think he'd be going south. Mobile again, maybe. Um, I don't know if they they announced the city, but I'm thinking Mobile again. It was friendly turf when he was there before. He's done a couple of rallies in that area and got good crowds at both of them. So I figure it's, it's Mobile again. Well, I mean, Tim, if he decides to, to go to the Gadsden Mall food court or a boat ramp on twice, <laughs> you let me know. I mean, we might could, you know, go over there and help him fill two seats, not really cheer, but just observe because, you know, I need somebody yep. learning how to drink water. Um, and speaking of that, let's talk about the content of this rally. Uh, one, I mean, you talk about the crowd and how they just like anything he does. Y'all saw the clip that I sent y'all, uh, I think um, – uh, Pod Save America actually posted it. I don't know if it's posted other places. How he drank the water and the crowd cheered. He threw the glass and it was like he had done this um, amazing bit. And then the real kicker, the real news out of this, is he talks about the coronavirus and says, I told him the way you get all these positive tests is you do the test. So stop testing. And everybody knows scientifically that all these nations like South Korea, and there's probably too many to mention now, they had an aggressive testing policy, and they are in so much better shape. Whether or not they opened back up later or stayed closed down longer, the testing was a key, and it shows how he's bungled this whole thing. But he just freely admitted it. Catherine, how damaging was that? I just think this whole this whole stop the testing because hurting our numbers is just it's so ludicrous. <laughs> I just I just can't stop laughing about it. I, I, I don't I don't know the the man is is you know unstable and not not. Not thinking in a, um, I mean, it's ridiculous to say if we would just stop testing, our numbers would be better. Well, yeah, but we still have, you know, increasing numbers and spikes all over the place. People are still getting sick. People are still dying, whether we test them or not. So let's test them so we know where, so we know where we're at. It's just a, you know, um, it's just a ludicrous uh, response to this. It's, it's. Um, I, I don't know what yeah. else to say, but that it's ridiculous. Um, more than content. Even though there was, the place was a third of the way full. They had them all jammed in there together. You know, we we talked a little bit about this online earlier today, how they didn't space people out when they could have. And, of course, Trump wasn't interested in that. He wanted to give every appearance of a great throng being there. People were pretty well jammed up against each other, both on the floor toward the stage and, and right around the stage in the seats. 
Maybe according to media that was on site in the bullpen there looking around, maybe one out of every 25 people had the mask on. Yeah, now, and to the math. One of those people was uh, Oklahoma Senator James Langford and his wife, ironically. But right now, I want to welcome in our guest for the first time to the Kudzu Vine, Jacob Rabaskin. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, good to have you on. Um, well, first off, Jacob, since the first time on the show, just kind of tell our listeners about your background in particular, any uh, political journalism highlights. Yeah, so uh, currently I am a reporter and analyst for Inside Elections with Nathan Gonzalez, which is a nonpartisan uh, newsletter run out of Washington, D.C., uh, that does comprehensive coverage of House, Senate, gubernatorial races, as well as the presidential race uh, each cycle. Um, uh, before I, I was with Inside Elections, I was uh, at NBC News, also at the Washington, D.C. Bureau, uh, working on uh, both web uh, web journalism and uh, some TV production. And before that, I was a student at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Well, good deal. Now, tell us, you mentioned Inside Elections. Um, just kind of give us kind of the history and what that publication does. So Inside Elections was founded uh, in the 1980s by Stuart Rothenberg, uh, and it began its life as the Rothenberg Political Report. Um, and what it has been since then is a combination of uh, in-depth political coverage and analysis and political handicapping. Uh, so one thing that we're pretty well known for is our race rating. So every House, Senate, gubernatorial race uh, in the country, we uh, analyze and assign a rating to. Uh, so that's solid Democratic, solid Republican, lean Democrat, lean Republican, toss-up, um, and a few others. Uh, and so that's kind of what we're, we're most known for. Um, and we do that for, for those federal races as well as uh, for the presidential election, looking state by state through the Electoral College. And then what we also do is provide uh, really in-depth uh, descriptions of, of the individual dynamics of and we try every cycle to do every competitive race uh, that we can get our hands on and really give our readers everything that they need to know in one place about these elections. Yes. Well, I, I didn't realize I've watched Stuart Rothenberg for years on um, Inside Politics, and I didn't uh, – and I knew Nathan Gonzalez had taken it over, and I didn't realize the um, correlation. Yeah, well, uh, well, let me ask you then some about some hard political questions. I know just the past few weeks, well, you you told everybody in the past say two weeks, but I'm sure you've been doing it a lot longer. You've watched over 200 um, ads this cycle. Uh, just kind of tell us one how grueling that process was, and just as far <laughs> as the bird's eye view, what are you seeing about ads in this cycle? Well, so, so this project uh, got started. For me, in, in very early April, uh, the coronavirus was uh, still kind of new on the scene. We were just a few weeks into lockdown, and I had this idea uh, to take a look at how campaigns were using the virus uh, to, to message in, in their races. Um, so, so I wrote a story in early April looking at all of the political campaign ads up on TV that talked about coronavirus. 
and kind of saw how Republicans were treating the issue and how Democrats were treating the issue. At the time, there weren't very many. Um, there were only a handful, probably six or seven uh, campaigns that had already gone up on TV uh, about the virus in addition to the presidential campaigns. Um, since then, in the last uh, two and a half months, coronavirus has become the defining issue uh, for, for so many political races across the country. And kind of almost, uh, it's not all, but certainly a majority of of campaign ads that have been going up on TV. And I want to be specific. I, I wasn't watching, you know, digital ads that you might see on Facebook or uh, Instagram or places like that. I was, I was restricting myself to, to TV. So I didn't go totally insane. Um, they, they have really taken uh, and, and reflect the, the, the national scope of, of coronavirus. This is a thing that has affected every single person in this country. And so it makes sense that we have seen it reflected in almost every race uh, in the country. So that was, that was the first uh, iteration of this project. After the George Floyd uh, killing, um, I decided to see if I could stake out kind of a similar pattern, given the nationwide nature of, of the protests in, in the wake of that tragedy. So I went back and like you said, there, there was kind of a two week period where uh, 200 ads, give or take a few, were, were uh, aired on TV for the first time. And so I sat down and over the course of a couple hours, watched them all. Um, it, it was a grueling process. And, you know, I, I'd like to think that if I, if I had to write a, a political ad template for a, a House candidate, I could probably do a pretty good job nowadays because I've, I've watched all of them. Um, but, but it was just really interesting to see how the two parties are treating these issues and, and kind of what kinds of races um, and what kinds of elections you're starting to see discussions about George Floyd and the, and the nationwide protests. Uh, that have happened in in the wake of that incident. Yes, and I think it's important you mentioned, you know, you just looked at television ads, the traditional 30-second spots, and once in a while a minute, sometimes 15-second spots, particularly uh, on cable. But let me ask you, um, if you maybe not as part of this project, if you've done any research about how Internet ads are different because – I saw that you know a lot of people were doing more long form, you know, say nearly two minute ads online. But I saw for the first time in the last few days a five second ad on YouTube. It was a guy running for Congress in Florida, and it was basically designed to run the five seconds before you get the ad button. And it didn't go on after that. After the five seconds, you went to your YouTube go. What are candidates doing with playing with times and content online that's different than traditional? So the Internet gives you so much more flexibility uh, in, in terms of political advertising. So like you said, for TV, you're, you're really constrained to 30 seconds, a minute, 15, uh, because those are the, uh, the increments that the TV advertisers work in. You have to play by their rules. Online, it's, uh, it's a whole different ballgame, and, and for a while, it's been kind of the Wild West. Uh, so you can, you can really experiment. You can do things like say, well, YouTube gave us this constraint where after five seconds, everyone's just going to click through the ad because everyone knows that's what you do on YouTube. Um, so you tr start to play around and 
develop an ad that can only be in five seconds, whether that's just a short video or a GIF. Um, you see a lot of those same kinds of things on Facebook, where Facebook will actually throw in uh, their own advertisements kind of halfway through people's videos if they're long enough. So some uh, advertisers have really taken to shortening their ads so that they get everything they want you to hear before Facebook's own uh, advertisement kicks in. Um, and you get the additional flexibility of making longer videos. So we started to see a lot of candidates uh, really go all out for kind of their intro video um, that can be two, three, even four minutes long. And in 2018, there was a House candidate, uh, MJ Hagar in, in Texas, and her opening video was five minutes long. It cost millions of dollars to produce, but it went absolutely viral. It made her one of the biggest stars of, of that election cycle. And even though she lost that election, now she's running for Senate in, in no small part because of the national platform that five-minute-long ad gave her. Now, in the old days of TV, you could have never gotten away with that because putting up a five-minute ad would be, you know, you'd spend your entire campaign's budget in those five minutes. But because you have the, the flexibility of the Internet, uh, you're really able to push those uh, made-to-go-viral clips um, that, that give you uh, a, a greater scope to, to talk about your race. Yes. One last question about media, and that is you looked at all these ads. I know a lot of them were focused on coronavirus. Later they were focused on uh, police reform, um, maybe law order if they're Republicans, you know, things that have happened in the news. But obviously people have a lot of issues to vote on. Is there an issue that you didn't see and you think either Democrats or Republicans are missing the boat on not discussing this issue? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Uh, it's hard to answer before people start casting votes. You know, I, I think that uh, the, the lesson that Democrats learned in 2018 was beat these guys up on health care. And in race after race in 2018, just absolutely hammer these incumbents. They're going to take away your health care. And so in spite of all the kind of nationwide crises that have cropped up over the last uh, you know, couple months, there is still a through line all the way back from 2018 where uh, Democrats in particular are making health care and, and pre-existing conditions kind of the defining issue in their advertisements. And I think that I think that's what they should be doing if they want to win. And I think they are doing a good job of that because the national environment is shifting so much. Um, to, to say that candidates should be moving away from these kinds of bread and butter issues of health care and tax cuts uh, on the Democratic side and kind of uh, full-throated support for President Trump on the Republican side, I think those, those are the issues that campaigns are going to be sticking with from now into the election. Um, I'm not sure if there are things that they're missing on a nationwide level. Obviously, uh, every race is different, and, and, and some candidates have chosen to really focus in on local issues. Uh, rather than kind of the national issues that apply to all 50 states. Yes. Well, I'm going to pass this thing over to co-host first Catherine and then Tim, and they've got a lot more questions in particular about specific state districts. Catherine? All right. Hey, thanks for being with us tonight. We really appreciate it. It's always nice to have a new voice on uh, on the show, so we appreciate that. 
Um, I want. I, Happy to be I here. read your. I read your um, very uh, lengthy and um, detailed uh, piece about um, the Senate race here in Georgia with the recently winning primary candidate John Ossoff running against David Perdue, and I, I, just, I, I think our listeners would like to. Um, hear a little bit of those details that you went into, and um, also how you think the fact that there is not going to be a runoff, how that helps us position himself to going into the uh, general, because I think we all expected a runoff. Absolutely. So I'll answer the second one first, because it's a shorter answer. Um, it is incredibly beneficial that uh, for, for John Ossoff that he was able to uh, avoid uh, the runoff. And at the end of the day, I think they're still probably counting a few votes, but he was able to avoid the runoff with a, a little bit of a margin, too. He's up past 52%. Um, and really what that means is that he can start training his fire on David Perdue now. You know, he can, he can do that starting a week ago. Um, and even though if he was forced into a runoff at 49% and it was very clear that Teresa Tomlinson was not going to be able to make up the ground, the extra, you know, 40% that she'd need to win. uh, He would have still had to have been dealing with uh, attacks coming from the democratic party. And he really uh, would not have been able to direct the full force of his time, energy, and, and financial resources toward the general election. Uh, So it is always beneficial for, for any candidate to uh, n- avoid a runoff. I think you, c- you can say that it was a good thing that there was a contested primary for, for John Ossoff because it meant that he came in battle-tested. You know, there uh, were concerns about his viability. You know, does, is he able to win a, a, a real race? Um, and by winning the primary, he showed that, yes, he can go up against these two uh, legitimate candidates as well as a few other candidates who also combined for about 10% of the vote. Um, and, and so he kind of got the best of both worlds. He showed that he could win a contested election and he uh, seized upon the opportunity to uh, laser in his focus on David Perdue. Looking at the race more broadly, uh, this is not a race that has been on the top of uh, the priority list for either party in terms of the folks in Washington who kind of uh, are looking at the map as a whole. Um, and really, it was even playing second fiddle to uh, the special election to fill former Senator yeah. Isaacson's seat. Uh, and for a while, the sense was that race was the best chance for uh, Democrats to pick up a seat in Georgia and that the, the tension between Senator Leffler and Congressman Collins and the uh, the insider trading allegations, uh, there was a sense that that was where the real opportunity was. But that's changing. I think that uh, Reverend Warnock's inability to clear the field in that race, um, you know, Matt Lieberman and Ed Tarver's insistence on staying in, uh, and also uh, Warnock's inability to really uh, define himself as a top-tier candidate has, has made that race uh, a tougher proposition. And uh, in effect, made the, the Purdue race uh, perhaps a better bet for Democrats because 
Uh, it is a one-on-one -on -one contest in November where they will have the full force of the national environment uh, to try and get their candidate over the finish line. Mm. Well, also, I, I don't think that um, the very um, compelling candidate, he's kind of dull. He is, doesn't make a big um, splash about things. And so I don't know that people are – I mean, you might not like Kelly Loeffler or Dave, Doug Collins, but, um, but they're very um, uh, outspoken, and you hear about them a lot. But, you know, live, I live in Atlanta. We don't hear very much about David Perdue. Like, he's sort of a cipher. He's sort of beige. You know, you don't – I mean, we know he's, like, big on Trump, and, we, you know, we hear, we hear some, but he's not very um, – compelling and also even though Isaacson has retired I think a lot of people think of that as Isaacson's seat and Isaacson was was very um well liked and I mean I'm a Democrat I've not, the only time I ever voted for a Republican was voting for Don, for for Johnny Isaacson in my whole life I've been voting since 1976 and that was the only Republican vote I've ever cast so um, I think that's an interesting dynamic of it, too. But I really appreciated your column. And now I'm, I want to switch over now to the embarrassment of Georgia, the 14th congressional district, <laughs> where the where the <laughs> leading candidate in the primary now in a runoff is one of these QAnon maniacs. And I... And she she got a lot of votes. What was it like forty percent? So I wonder yeah. what your thoughts are on that race. Well, this is just a slow moving train wreck for the Republican Party. I mean, it, it wasn't two months ago that uh, there was this party wide movement to beat Congressman Steve King in Iowa uh, because of his racist comments and uh, the the embarrassment that he had become to the Republican Party. Uh, so, so to go within the span of one election cycle, not even in the next cycle, but in the same cycle, for the Republican Party now to have to deal with Marjorie Taylor Greene in, in Georgia 14 is really, it, it's something to behold. Um, even before the primary, you know, there, there are kind of two stages to the uh, the the understanding of, of, of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, because even before the primary, everyone knew, or it was, it was out there that she was a QAnon promoter. It was out there that she was promoting these conspiracy theories about George Soros. Um, and, and it was out there that she was running into issues about, uh, you know, advocating for violence in, in her campaign ads. Um, all that clearly wasn't enough to dissuade the voters of the 14th District uh, not to give her 41% of the vote. Since then, you've had this whole other wave of stories where Politico uncovered, you know, these, these sexist, racist, homophobic, Islamophobic, uh, anti-Semitic rants that she went on on social media um, that really caught everyone's attention in a way that the QAnon stuff hadn't. Uh, and the Republican Party on a nationwide level has been uh, – really furiously trying to uh, back her opponent, John Cowan. Um, so Kevin McCarthy, uh, his allies at the NRCC, 
um, most of the Georgia congressional delegation uh, has lined up behind Cowan since these stories came out. But like you said, uh, she won 41% of the vote. I think she, she is clearly still the front runner in this runoff. And if she wins the runoff, she's going to Congress. Because, I mean, I don't, I don't need to tell you about Georgia 14. Um, but uh, Kevin Van Osdall, who's the Democratic candidate there, uh, he's got a thousand bucks in the bank. Uh, he's not going to win that race. So this is the Republican Party's last best chance, this runoff, to uh, prevent Marjorie Taylor Greene from, from getting to Congress and just being a continual embarrassment um, every single day when reporters ask her about these things in the halls of Congress. Mm. Yep. We hear you. We're all, we're all uh, horrified by it, I think. Um, that's it for me. I'm going to pass it over to Tim. I know he's got some great questions for you. Thank you so much for your uh, insight. Really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. First of all, uh, sir, thank you for that excellent report that you just gave out to a fellow you're talking to who's, who's unfortunately sitting in the middle of the 14th Congressional District here. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, anyway, um, a few weeks ago, uh, they're talking about the mess in Kentucky with the election on Chris Hayes' show about the fact that there's going to be like 200 polling places open in the whole state for the primary on Tuesday. And they say, and in just a moment, we're going to have U.S. Senate candidate on to talk about it. I thought, aha, Amy McGrath. No, I was wrong. It was a fellow by the name of Charles Booker. So question number one, didn't he seem to suddenly come from nowhere? And number two, can he realistically upset Amy McGrath on Tuesday? So it, it does feel like uh, Charles Booker kind of uh, came came right out of left field. Uh, I actually I had the chance to interview him um, at the end of May, uh, kind of mm-hmm. right before he he took off. So we we were linked, we were thinking about Kentucky, uh, Nathan and I. Um, we actually, we had interviewed Mike Breuer, who's the third candidate, and uh, we, we uh, heard from Booker's camp as well, and, and we set up an interview. So I, I got to talk to him for a little bit. Um, he is doing exactly what he needs uh, to win this race, and that he is really peaking at just the right time. Um, and he... I think everyone would agree, and McGrath's folks probably wouldn't admit it, but I think they would agree too, uh, that he has the momentum uh, coming into to this primary on Tuesday. Um, I think what, while he did kind of uh, break late, it, it is important uh, to, to his success here that uh, this is a guy who has a long history in, in Kentucky politics. Uh, he's a sitting member of the Kentucky uh, House of Representatives. He uh, had run a campaign for uh, state Senate a couple years before that and has been in that universe uh, for, for several years before that. So while he was not getting national attention, he was building a coalition on the ground of uh, state legislators and, and local politicians uh, that were lining up behind his campaign. And so when the moment came for him to break out, uh, he 
was able to take advantage of that. And, and that moment really has been uh, the, the nationwide protests in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Um, and and uh, specifically to Kentucky, the, uh, the, the killing of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, uh, which, which is where Booker is from. Um, Mm-hmm. So he, he has been able to position himself as a leader uh, in that protest movement that has sprung up over the past month. And he has been out on the streets um, advocating uh, for, for these protests, advocating for police reform um, in a way that McGrath has not. And so uh, it's a combination of the, the groundwork that he's been laying over the last couple months and then the uh, specific and tragic circumstances of the last six weeks that have created this opportunity for him to really come into his own. And he has done that as well as I think, uh, you know, anyone could ask of a candidate um, between his uh, high profile endorsements, the fundraising. Um, but can he win? And I think that's still a, a, an open question here. Uh, Kentucky is a conservative place. Right. And the Democratic Party in Kentucky is still this more ancestral, old school uh, Democratic Party that uh, does not necessarily reflect kind of the nationwide uh, national party. And Amy McGrath has really tried to appeal to those conservative voters, those voters who wanted Rocky Adkins for governor in 2019. Um, mm-hmm. And she's tried to short up her base there. Uh, Charles Booker has been trying to expand the coalition, uh, bring in first-time voters, bring in lower propensity voters, black voters, Hispanic voters, younger voters, um, and, and win by running an unabashedly liberal campaign. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it'll work or not. I, it's never worked before in Kentucky. I'll, I'll say that. There's mm-hmm. a guy who tried a similar strategy in 2019 by the name of Adam Edelin, who, who mm-hmm. ran a big progressive campaign uh, against Andy Bashir in the gubernatorial primary. Like, like Booker, he raised a couple million dollars and went up on TV, and he got, you know, 28% of the vote. You can't win a primary mm. with 28% of the vote. So uh, Booker's doing everything he needs to win, but whether that's enough, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll have to see. Mm. Moving um, northeast of there, I am fascinated by the career of Susan Collins and how she has flourished in Maine. But this year, she seems to finally have a genuine competitive race facing her. How much trouble is Susan Collins in? Oh, she's in a lot of trouble. She is in a lot Mm. of trouble. Uh, like she has never been in her political career before. This is the first time that she is really in danger of of losing that seat since uh, she got elected to it. Um, the reason being, Susan Collins has always had this reputation as uh, being a middle-of-the-road, moderate Republican. Uh, sometimes she votes with the Republicans. Sometimes she votes against the Republicans. And that has endeared her to not just Republicans in the state, but independents and Democrats as well. Now, Maine is a state with a really strong independent streak. Angus King, their other senator, is a true independent. Uh, He's never been with either party. Um, And and so they like that kind of stuff. 
I think what's happened in recent years, and really since Trump was elected, is that the, the direction in which Trump has taken the party is, is just too much. It's, it's too far right, uh, and it's too Trumpy for uh, people in Maine. Susan Collins, she's always tried to be in the middle, right? So back when it was mm-hmm. you know, the Bush Republicans and the Kerry Democrats, being in the middle was a good spot to be in in Maine. But under Trump, the party has moved so much that now when she gets back to the middle, she's just so much more right than she used to be. And the, the positions that she's staking out on the issues that people really care about, uh, you know, things like the nomination and confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, when she decides to side with the Republican Party on that, when she votes for the tax cuts, those are the things that are now sticking in people's minds uh, that say, well, wait a minute, she's not really down the road anymore because if she were, you know, down the middle of the road, she would have voted against those things. And so it's those independents and Democrats who have always kind of liked her uh, who are now starting to see that uh, as the Republican Party moves further toward Trump, uh, so does Susan Collins. And, and that's, that's bad news for her because she has always been elected with the support of Democrats and independents. That's why she's been able to put up, you know, she won over 60% of the vote in 2008 while Barack Obama was winning Maine handily. Uh, she is not going to be able to get anywhere near those numbers uh, this time around. And, that, and that's a real issue for her. Wow. Uh, thank you for that, sir. And with that, I'll pass it back to David. David? Yes, Jacob. We have so enjoyed this. And we just wanted to give you the chance before you go to tell folks if they've heard you and they want to read about elections or just read, uh, find you on social media. What are all the ways people can experience your knowledge? Yeah, so you can read my stuff at insideelections.com. It's all there. Uh, and then you can follow me on Twitter as well. And my Twitter handle is at Jacob Rubashkin. And that's Rubashkin, R-U-B-A-S-H-K-I-N. Uh, and, and that's where you'll find most of my, uh, my thoughts about uh, what's going on in the world these days. So it's, it's a well, good mix of politics and uh, complaining about the New York Giants. <laughs> yeah, maybe you'll have a, a season to complain about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really. Well, Jacob, I feel like we just scratched the surface. Surface. So maybe before the November election, you'd be so kind as to come on again. Absolutely, would love to. Yes. Well, thanks so much for what you shared with us tonight. Thank All you. Right, well, thanks for having me on. Yes. Thank you, sir. Right, Jacob Rubashkin, Inside Elections, um, just so informative. That article that he, he talked about on Georgia, it was as thorough as anything that has been done on Georgia politics this yeah. cycle, seemingly, and so it, it covered so much. Um, but let's kind of get uh, – I guess we've pretty much covered that, that rally uh, pretty well that we saw last night. Um, now we need to get to something we've been trying to for two weeks um you know trump just takes up so much oxygen can't even really get to anything about joe biden and the democrats seemingly but we're going to make a point to discuss that he's got to round out his ticket he's got to pick um 
a vice presidential running mate, and he said, you know, this is, I guess, before he was even the presumptive nominee, back when at least Bernie Sanders and maybe Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, um, a lot of candidates were in the race, that it would be a female. He, it was going to be um, uh, a female t- uh, on the ticket, and um, that was where he was going to go with that because it's just time. Um there's been reports of this person and that person. But before we get into the names, that we're going to use a list that I believe we saw from Chris Zilla on CNN of, of people that have been vetted, that are on the final six. Before we get to that, I just kind of want to get just a general theory on what you think about should go into his process and thinking first, Catherine, then Tim. Catherine? Well, I think he needs to find someone who's uh, – relatively younger uh, because he is um, you know he's old and we need I think we need to bring some youthful vitality to the campaign as well as to the um, White House number one number two um, I think someone who has um, executive experience not necessarily in a traditional way, but someone who's managed people and has, um, you know, had to juggle a lot of, because as a senator, that's not really executive experience. And his role as vice president wasn't either. I I mean, he probably managed a lot of people, but it was a little bit different than sort of traditional executive experience. And then I think it should be a woman of color, uh, whether it's a black woman or a um, Latinx woman or, you know, an Asian woman or whatever. I just think that that would um, send a important message. And I also think, especially at this moment in our history, I think we need to have um, the voice of um, a woman of color in the White House um, in a in a in a important position, so I think. Uh, and then you know, obviously, we want someone who gets along well with Joe Biden. That's an important piece of this. We've seen um, in our history, we've seen vice presidents that didn't really get along with the president, and I think it 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 um, doesn't serve us well. And uh, and of course, we need someone who's like got a lot of energy and can campaign like crazy between now and November. Those are the things that I think are important. Tim, what's your thought? Well, uh, of course, he's promised to pick a woman, and and uh, you know, regardless, I'm glad he stuck to that because that's important. Number two. I think it needs to be a person, as he has promised, who is ready themselves on day one to be present, you know, because of his age and just the general state of things. Um, and and number three, I agree with Catherine. I, I, I think it should be um, a person of color. With, with all that is going on in the news, with the issues that have come up, especially recently, and with the makeup of, of uh, our voting electorate, I think it is very much time for that. So those three things. 
Yes, and I'll go ahead and tell you, I think Joe Biden is in a great position when he makes the pick. Um, Hillary Clinton aside, because she was the nominee, the other two times a woman has been on the ticket, it was kind of a, oh, I'm in desperate straits. I need to do something so unconventional to um, you know, change the dynamics of this race, both with Sarah Palin in 2008 and uh, with um, Geraldine Farrar in uh, 1984. And so I think Joe Biden is kind of in the situation that Barack Obama was in and that he's in a good position because of the state of the Republican Party, and he can pick somebody he's comfortable with. <coughs> Sorry about that. Um, and so uh, that's where he's got to look. He doesn't have to you know, pick this person to you know, do this special thing um, to win this you know, state necessarily. I think it's just who can be the president and step in. I do think y'all are right. It has to be somebody younger. And by younger, he's 76, going to be 77 by Inauguration Day, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that means, you know, probably 16 years younger than him, like somebody younger than 60. Um, just That's kind of a, 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 you know, mark that probably of the list we're about to do. I think that knocks out. Elizabeth Warren, maybe somebody else. I think there's somebody we're going to talk about their age, and she looks a lot younger than 60, um, to be honest, uh, looking at her campaign side uh, for Congress. But um, that's kind of where I think it is. And here's the thing. I, the list we're going to read is very diverse, um, and I, I think it's absolutely not a problem at all if he, if he wants to pick any of these uh, women of color. But I will say this. Given that this will be a groundbreaking thing, no woman in America has ever, um, you know, won either of the executive branch offices of presidency or vice presidency. I think any woman will be so breaking, so historic that the race does not matter at that point. I mean, if we'd had, you know, five white women had done this and a woman of color never had. I think that would be more of a consideration, but I think you know that history maker being a woman uh, is sufficient if Joe Biden feels that person's the best. Now, getting to this list we're going to get to, unless there's names that this source did not know about, it's really um, many, many more women of color than anything else. And I don't think we're going to get deep into this list tonight. But let's go ahead and talk about the person that's seemingly number one on every list that I see, and then we'll talk about the rest of them hopefully by next week. And that person is Kamala Harris, a U.S. senator from uh, California. She served as attorney general. I know you mentioned uh, Criterion Catherine, and I'm not sure that attorney general meets that criterion or not. But what's your take on Kamala Harris, buy, sell, or hold here? Oh, absolutely, bye. I'm a big Kamala Harris fan. I think she'd be a good, a good um, candidate. My only concern about her is uh, she has had there has been some criticism about um, the way she handled um, when she was um, Attorney General. Some of her decisions were. Um, have been criticized because they were too harsh, but I think we can. I think we can get. Past, I think she can 
explain that well and quickly and get through that. So I'm definitely a buy on Kamala. Yeah, but before I get to Tim, I mean, I think one thing people are got to put in perspective is if you had a job, you did that job. And if your job is the lead prosecutor for the state of California and before that um, somewhere in the Oakland area, you had to, you know, try people that were um, arrested and had been to that point in the criminal justice system. So, I mean, you can't – if she did a crappy job and never convicted everybody, that would be a strike against her too. So it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't in some people's eyes. Um, Tim, what's your take on Kamala Harris? Definitely by she is the favorite. She's the front runner for the position, and, and that's um, show, shown in the polls of, of Democratic voters that she's far and away the favorite. Uh, she is very good on her feet, very good on television. I think she can go to toe-to-toe with Mike Pence and better than hold her own. She'll be a terrific campaigner. She would be an excellent running mate, and she's the person you can look at and listen to and say this person could be president if she had to be. Yeah, I agree. Yes. Uh, th- th- that's a low bar, though, Tim. If you can't take Mike Pence in a debate, um, you, you know, you, you may be off the list Well, already. I tell you, Hillary Clinton's running mate didn't take him. Mike Pence won that debate. He's too nice, and you know my thoughts on Tim Kaine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he was not the pick for the time. Um, no. Not what not what she needed. Um, anyway, but let, let me give my bicycle hold uh, for Congress. I bought her for president, so my goodness, why wouldn't I buy her for vice president? Um, and I think the fact that – remember the debate where Joe Biden maybe had his worst moment. It, it, she came to task for um, uh, school busing policy in the 70s, but then she came back and endorsed him. And so she kind of brings that look. Uh, Joe Biden may not have been perfect back in the 1970s, but now it's 2020. There's not a time in between. He's the man for this time uh, over Donald Trump, and I think uh, that will help him with some voter that might be um, reticent to support him. And that's one thing he needs to worry about is anybody that might say, oh, well, I'm looking at um, – Dr. Jill Stein again, you know, all those folks, other than the very, very hard cores, uh, you need to pull them in. Or folks that may just say, I'm, I'm too busy to vote. And we're talking about if the polling plates are like normal and like they should be, not like we've seen so far in this primary, where you have to, you know, pack a lunch in a lawn chair to get to vote. <laughs> she appears to be ready from day one. You know, if, if God forbid um, this is a William Henry Harrison situation, um, you know, she'd be ready as soon as she needed to be. I think she'd be a good partner for Joe Biden. You know, she'd let Joe Biden be president. Um, I, I think that's important for him because Joe Biden let Barack Obama be president. So if it's his turn, he probably wants to be, you know, the boss so they could work as a team. And I, I think she'll allow him to do that. So there's a reason she's number one on everybody's list. She may not be the pick. Um, but I think when it gets down to they send two or three plane tickets out and any of them can be tapped to, I guess, unfortunately go to Joe's basement because it doesn't seem like we're getting out to, um, you know, bigger events anytime soon. Um, 
she may, you know, she'll get sent one of those plane tickets at minimum unless something drastically changes. Well, guys, it's uh, been a good hour. Next week, we're going to get in a little Wisconsin politics, among other things. And then we are going to have these other five names on the agenda to discuss as well. But in Lynn, it's been okay. too fine. Good night, everybody. Good night, guys. Good night. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion.